0: Hello and welcome back to this is not a history lecture 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 so today's funny well this episode's funny because Ken and I have been recording since 10 a.m. yeah and it is now 2 p.m. And that we did get lunch, yeah. So we we're, did being, lunch. we're exaggerating, but <laughs> well, we'll have to record an emergency episode in the near future, and I'm we assuming will. it's going to come at- around the same time that we have to do that next double recording. Yep. So we're get- we're probably going to have like a two episode, maybe even three episode recording day. That sounds absolutely miserable. Oh, that actually sounds fun to me, but really, yeah, <laughs> that's so much. <laughs> we have guys. If y'all haven't figured it out, we have radically different personalities so different (laughs) it's why we work and why we sometimes don't work because we get really sidetracked with each other (laughs) uh but there's a balance as with all things but yeah so it's been i mean i I, maybe by the end of this episode i'll feel a little bit more but i feel like we're doing fine yeah Yeah. i have to keep my energy up because i ballet today and i cannot let myself like sink Anyway, but... I have nothing to do after this except sit on my couch and watch Adventure Time.
1: Uh,
0: watch Hill House.
1: I can't. My roommate
0: will let me. It's daylight. Mm, she's weird. Well, she's not weird. She just doesn't like scary movies. Which, which is fair. Yeah. Hill House seems scary until you've watched it, it all the way through and you're like, oh. That wasn't bad. It doesn't even seem scary. Well, like, okay. It just feels like a thriller. Yeah. Okay. So if you don't know, we're talking to The Haunting of Hill House. We're talking about The Haunting of Hill House. Which is, which is... one of the best shows I have ever seen. <laughs> it's so good. Incredible. So good. It's on Netflix. If you haven't watched it, please go watch it. It's been out for a even long if you, time. Yeah. Even if you don't like scary things, it's worth it. Yeah. Like, the story and the way the show is, like, built. Oh, my God. It's so worth it. hmm But, like, my roommate, we were watching the first episode, and she was like, this is really stressful. I can't it watch is. it. And I'm like yeah, that's fair, but, like, you're stressed out, so you, like, can't watch it. I know, like, and I think that would make you want to binge it all I know, I was like, don't you want to know what happens, like, to get the stress over with? Which yeah. is partially because of the soundtrack. That soundtrack is so well made. Oh, it's, it's so a- good. There's nothing about this show that I don't like, and it has what I consider to be one of the most heartbreaking monologues I've ever seen when Theo and <sighs> Cheryl are in the car. Yeah, in the car. Like, it is... Yeah. Out of everything I've ever seen, just the way, like, she completely loses it, I... Yeah. Or the monologue at the end with Nell, and that one wrecks me. I don't cry. I sob. Like, during shows and movies and stuff, like, I don't. Like a baby. Yeah, every time. I've watched this show, like, five times now. Mm -hmm. Every single time. It's, like... Like, a tear on a cheek. It is Sobbing. Like... Yeah. When As soon as she starts talking about how it's like, it's all so clear to me now. Like, I'm like, oh, oh this hurts. <laughs> in my soul. Uh, and it's Victoria Pedretti. I think yeah. that's how you say her name. So if you liked her in You mm-hmm. or a lot of the other stuff she's done, she's fantastic. It's yeah. got the um, woman from, she's Rebecca and the Museum and a bunch of other stuff. She's a really famous actress. It's yes. just, that's what I grew up knowing her as. Uh, um, I don't know who you're talking about. Who? She's the mom. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 She's in mm-hmm. a lot. Um my sister pointed out I've never seen the Twilight movies all the way through, but the woman who plays yes. um Esme? Esme. Esme. Yes. Is in it? Yeah. Um Kate, is her name Siegel? Segel? I don't, I think Siegel. Um she's the director's wife, I mm-hmm. believe, and their mm-hmm. power duo. Also, oh my God. the complexity, there's like a 30-minute scene with no cuts. In it, and it is one so of the good. best things I've ever seen. We're literally like plugging the show, like we're being paid to, but we're genuinely—we're just not. we like, genuinely just, just love so this movie, the show so much. It I've been like three evangelical about this show. Yeah, like I've made oh, yeah. so many people watch it. Same. Yeah. I've watched it so many times because yeah. other people are like, "I don't want to watch a lot." Like, no, like, no, watch we're gonna it. sit down and watch it together <laughs> right now. Yeah, we're gonna start at two a.m. We will finish at ten p.m. the next day. Here we go. Yeah. Ugh, oh, it's so good. Yeah. Um, and then the second season is really good too. It is. I don't, I wouldn't call it quite as good. It's definitely a different story, but it's still really good. It's an anthology. So like the second season has a couple of the same actors, but like, like it's a different story. Yeah. It's like the better version of American horror story. Where you don't you like went there. hate yourself for yes. watching every episode. Yes. And I say that as someone who was very into American horror story as an early teenager. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's our that's our plug now that we've ranted for like five minutes. We both yeah, l- it's worth love it. that show. Ugh, it's so good. It's um, up there on things that Kaylee and I will watch together a million times. A million it's up there times. with Stardust. Yes. <laughs> Stardust, excellent film. Um Oh, we still need to watch Sinbad. I know. <laughs> oh, damn, you're busy tonight. You yeah. Damn. You haven't seen Prince of Egypt either. Yeah, I know. It's Hans Zimmer, Kaylee. Yeah. Well, Sinpad's just as good. So. Is it Hans Zimmer? Has it scored by Hans? Zimmer? I don't know who does the score. I don't know those things. Okay. Well. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Well, soon, soon, soon. But yeah, yes. that's you already know how our weeks are going because we said it on the last episode when we recorded yeah, that been, a few hours ago. Um, we did just get sushi, so that's been the only change in our. Situation since last episode. Yeah. Oh, we we went and got Kaylee's car full of gas because she yeah. was about to be out, and gas prices are going up because a pipeline got hacked. Yeah, that's so that's fun. Um, sorry to the people in North Carolina dealing with that. I know that they're dealing with it a little more than we are now, mm-hmm. but I'm a little worried about where we're gonna be in like a week. My uh, dad is in North Carolina her, right yeah, now. Yeah, Kat's dad is currently in he North Carolina. Is a consultant and he does airport consulting and airplanes take a lot of gas a lot more There's gas, no a gas car. up there right now so <laughs> i'm hoping he makes it home before i make it home so i can actually see him yeah i'm sure i'm sure it'll be fine um, and yeah. he's an employee who's so like priority he's not like their employee he's like a contract. i don't know how to describe yeah. it yeah he's but, working for them yeah yeah so oh uh, yeah cat's dad also of... does work on something that's very close to my house which is really funny yeah yeah i live I live in Houston, right by Ellington Airport, which I know your dad has worked with. Yeah. And the new spaceport. <laughs> it's, but the thing is about my dad, that, like, he could get stranded with no plane, no car, and he would find a way to get home before yeah. I did, just mm-hmm. so that he could see his kids. Like, That's that is nice. 100% my dad, which makes me feel bad about them not knowing that I have a podcast. <laughs> yeah. They've got to find out this time. They're going to know by the next time, by the next time we record. Chances they, are they're going to know. They're, yeah. So y'all be prepared. It only took 16. 16 <laughs> episodes. 17. Well, no, 16. Yeah. 16 episodes. But yeah, that's all that's happened since we've last talked to y'all. Yeah. Um, I think we should just jump right in. I'm done. All right, Kat. Awesome. Oh, oh my God. We didn't even mention. This is our Mother's Day episode. Oh. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have... Uh, we had to release the emergency episode the week we were supposed to do the Mother's Day episode. Mm-hmm. So now we're doing like a makeup Mother's Day episode. Um, and so this would have come out on the 11th. Now it's coming out on like the 25th, I think. Yeah. But anyway, our thing for the Mother's Day episode and for Father's Day is we ask our respective mother and father mm-hmm. uh, what they would like to hear about. Yes. So these are stories that have been requested by our mothers. Which um, inadvertently for me. <laughs> yeah. Kat had to do a little finagling with how she <laughs> I asked my asked whole family. Mom. I was like, Who's your favorite historical person? Who what's your favorite historical event? And like I tried to like push it a little Come bit. On. And Come everyone on. gave me a couple good answers and then my mom just gave me like one. And I was like, of Okay, course. I guess that's what we're doing. It's like mom, you're the one I need <laughs> I've yeah. anyone else? I my little oh my sister God. was like a blinken, so my mother sent her sent us all a picture of my little sister in an Abe Lincoln hat you're like you're not and answering like, that's the not question, question. that's such a mother thing <laughs> well my mom <laughs> my mom said when I first asked her about this like a month ago she was like you could do Nixon I think he was autistic and I was like Okay, like I can't diagnose him with autism. I'm not a like medical professional. Yeah, and she was like, "Yeah, no, just the way he acts and stuff." And like, my mom works with children, so she's like kind of trained to recognize the signs of potential autism spectrum mm. disorder and stuff like that. So like, she, I'm more she, she about can Watergate, see it. But yeah, yeah, no, it's like she she so she can see it. So she was like, "I wonder if he was autistic." And I was like, "That's really cool, mom. And that would be a really interesting study." However, I'm not a medical historian. I'm not a medical professional. Yeah, I am we can't do that. I am a 22-year-old with a podcast, so I will not be diagnosing former President Richard Nixon with any sort of mental anything, so... I mean... <laughs> yeah. You know... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you went with the one you did. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm very excited, um, but yeah. if you are interested in history and are in a research capacity that would and are interested in presidential history, history or American history... That would be a really interesting article. Yeah. yeah. There's not a lot of uh, visibility for a lot of differences than just cis, straight white men in the mm-hmm. presidency, mm-hmm. but I mean we've had um we've had presidents before that are probably homosexual and just were yeah. never really came public with it um and weren't open about it. We've had presidents yeah. that are that, you know that have wheelchair accessibility. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's mm-hmm. our presidents come off i mean they're all sh- pretty much just white men <laughs> yeah. and it yeah. sucks because some diversity would be great and probably would really help our nation mm-hmm. but um there are some presidents who ha- had more than just they-, they dealt with and worked through and worked with and and had the opportunity to like bring some really unique things to the presidency yeah yeah, and again, that is a very interesting topic, but it is for someone who has far many more qualifications than I do. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and more than in just history and the medical world, too. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, so we're really excited to do this episode today, mm-hmm. and Kat is very excited to start off with... The printing press. Oh, I'm so excited. Johannes Gutenberg. Ah, the Gutenberg press. So I Iconic! It it is. <coughs> Good. Sorry, that was a cough. Her <laughs> seasonal cough is coming back. My seasonal cough. Yeah. So I first learned about the printing press in an elementary school GT class, which just... Of course, I have a podcast now. I was in GT in elementary school. I was also in GT. Except GT <laughs> worked different in my school. Greek like mythology and all that. No. So GT in my school, every other school, including my brother's GT program, like, y'all got to do, like, cool things and learn about, like, cool stuff. Mine... Was literally just you got put in a class with all the other GT kids, but, like, for all day. Not just you got pulled out, like, once a week or whatever. All day. And all we had was, like, more work. It wasn't cooler work. It wasn't more interesting work. It was just more work (laughs) like we learned all the same things there's just more of it so we're the we're just that gifted burnout stereotype oh my god you and i just fit that so well i'm just upset that apparently everyone else got this like really cool stuff and got to learn about like ancient greek people and like because cooper my brother like he gets to learn about really cool stuff and i don't i didn't Oh, I, that does sound I just cool. had well, a normal elementary school experience well that's when i first <laughs> learned about this yeah like um they gave us like each a topic and that's actually where i heard about the mary celeste which was the emergency episode they would have heard about two weeks ago yeah. um so yeah um my first foray into history really i guess kind of but yeah fun fact that i was not taught because the uh, eurocentric american education system johannes gutenberg didn't invent the printing press guys really he invented like the modern kind of version of it that we use but no not by a few hundred years that makes sense <laughs> i'm a little stressed right now but well, it does make sense all good <laughs> or just a stress that everything you knew is a lie um, I think I'm just being dramatic. <laughs> and well, the way you're leaning over your mic with the red on button, you have like this weird glow of red on your face and you just look like you're dying. I just, I was just cradling my head in my hands. It just was really uncomfortable and like You need to lay down on that sofa. I think I might need a minute. You're on the sofa. I'm being dramatic. You can continue. Okay. <laughs> um, so if you want like an overall timeline and history – of all the dates and people and places I'm about to mention, I would recommend the American Printing History Association, um, and there's some other resources, but they have a huge timeline laid out of like every iteration of printing that's like ever existed, nice. which is a feat. But it also it allows you to look at some really cool details and get a wider look at the world and the world of printing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Got luck. Um, so the earliest movable type of printer, uh, appeared in China as early as the 18th century. I was going to say it was China, China, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um. The 18th century? Eighth, eighth. century. Okay. It sounded like, like you said eight. way before. 18th. No. Yeah. yeah okay. Sorry, eight. Eighth. So seven hundred. Way before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, some say that there may have been some as early as like the first or second century AD. Makes sense. Yeah. Um. And I mean, if they invented the concept, our modern concept of paper. Like, are we shocked? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, like, China always had a good grasp on technology textile. and all this. Oh, like, not textiles, but, like, paper and everything. Materialistic. Yeah. yeah. Like, mm-hmm. and, and just in general, China was really far above the world in a lot of, like, fields and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, we know this because some of the oldest surviving books that we have were printed with this original woodblock system coated in ink from the 8th century. Nice. So, like. So we have tangible t- proof. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that one of the colleagues of the man who invented this wrote about his accomplishments and how it was going to like make printing easier and stuff. So there are, mm-hmm. there are kind of like, there's some sources and research available on it. Um, yeah. But it seems like there is someone else that invented a new iteration of it around the, around the 11th century. So 10 hundreds um also in china who made it with some movable type of like baked clay Hmm. um instead of wood carvings baked clay but he seemed to have a very similar system just for the more i'm wow i just called our audience ignorant that is not correct the more uneducated. No, that's worse. That's worse, Kaylee. Oh my God. Sorry. The people who don't might not know about the history of printings. What is movable type? Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a really good point. People who are just not as educated on printers. Sorry. I was not trying to insult anyone. No, that's the same. <laughs> if you asked me how the modern printer works, I'd be like, I don't know. No, I don't I do know. understand movable type. Um, I actually didn't until I learned this in elementary school. I was just like, what do you mean? Well, yeah, I was taught it at some point. Yeah, yeah. I didn't come out of the womb knowing about movable type. <laughs> okay, so. That'd be weird. <laughs> like, the immovable type, um, it's, you know, you know what a stamp is. Like, if you go to Hobby Lobby and you get mm-hmm. one of those stamps with that, like, plasticky silicone bottom yeah. and you press it against the paper, that in and of itself is almost kind of like an immovable type it is a set thing in its entirety it is Mm -hmm. carved you get the entire finalized piece as soon as you stamp it down yeah the movable type is basically you have lots of smaller pieces that can get arranged on this larger piece and like attached so that you can move them around into different orders and get a different total outcome every time. So like instead of yeah. having a a stamp that has a Christmas scene on it. And every time you put that stamp, you get a different scene, like the same thing. Mm-hmm. You would take like a huge piece of wood. It could be like half the size of the coffee table we're sitting in front of. Mm-hmm. Um, lay out a bunch of different pieces on it, like different letters, almost like you would a Scrabble board. Mm-hmm. Attach them to it. And then put a piece of paper between that large piece with all your smaller pieces in it mm-hmm. and a base underneath and mm-hmm. you would get like a whole page. It's like a, basically a stamp that you can like customize, customize exactly. Yeah. And at antique stores and stuff, you can still find
1: mm-hmm. like
0: old letters that they would use in movable type printing presses. Yeah. Definitely not from the seven or seventeen seven hundreds 700s yeah. China, <laughs> but, but from like yes. early America in printing and, stuff. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's really cool. Um, this, this movable type that Gutenberg made that we kind of consider to be the first version of it, and I'll kind of go over why we consider that iteration to be one of the first. It's He got his ideas from pressing grapes, the way they would press mm-hmm. grapes. So they would essentially have like a vat or a table of grapes. And they'd have the big board underneath where everything rested on, and he would have it. It's like a big slab of wood, and it's almost like a corkscrew coming out of that top piece. And you turn this wrench-like piece yeah. and court and like screw those two big ones into uh, into each other. But you press that top one down okay, so hard yeah. that it presses the juice out. It's like out a of flower. It's like a flower press, kind of. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's the method he kind of used to create this. Yeah. You know, I type. wonder if this was more. This was developed earlier in China because Chinese characters are representative of words, whereas, like, English alphabet has letters. That's so exactly been... actually why. What's well, one of the reasons oh, okay. why it picked up in Europe and didn't really yeah. pick up in China. Interesting. Okay, because I would think it would be the opposite because instead of putting together letters, mm-hmm. you're just putting together sentences. Right. Which seems as much more manageable than putting together words. It would. I think it's about the alphabet yeah the complexity okay. of the alphabet and the amount of mm-hmm. characters in it okay yeah. but um yeah so this this movable type that we know you would just put a piece of paper between the top and bottom and then screw the top mm-hmm. down like press mm-hmm. it down into the bottom and then well you have a piece of paper that's been quote printed and yeah. then you change the pa- like you can make if you're planning to make 500 books you would do that 500 times with that same set and then you take the block off reset all the letters in it into the next page for page and then (laughs) 500 more and more and more so makes sense yeah yeah that's the movable type that's the best way i can describe it i'd highly recommend you go look at videos there are some museums and stuff that still have working yeah there's a guy on tiktok that does them i think he's from is he from old salem no he's from (sighs) no he's from (sighs) it's like a printing (sighs) museum museum yeah Yeah. i follow him on tiktok yeah (laughs) he's fun it's, same, it's like the Carnegie Mellon snail guy. Yes. Oh, my God. Tim. Yeah. Um, Carnegie Mellon. Go go follow museum TikToks, guys. They're fantastic. They're a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> and we're not just saying that it's museum grad students. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're actually cool. But there's really cool. You can, like, see people use this still yeah. to print. Um, yeah. So, again, historiography plays a big part in this, too. Um, a lot of people would say that gutenberg invented the printing press which he invented the modern version but like it's a very eurocentric take to put on it without having the disclaimer that this was invented long before by uh people in china and Mm -hmm. it even starts to show up in korea in the late 1300s Mm. so you know maybe historiography will change a little bit and we'll be able to teach that in public schools and yeah um but yeah one of the biggest reasons that i saw for the You know, it's it's always there's a myriad of reasons in um, that something doesn't pick up or take off or context or Mm -hmm. something, Mm -hmm. and it looks like the big commonly accepted reasons that it didn't take off in Asia quite as well, even though they were using like woodblock prints and all this stuff there. Yeah, is that it's the it has to do with the complexity of the alphabet and um, printing individual characters instead of like you said words and everything. Yeah i think it was That's just, because there's a lot of characters exactly more than 26 alphabet yes. letters yeah okay yeah that makes more sense and yeah. you only needed to rearrange 26 if you were yeah doing okay yeah. A european makes language sense. um and i think i i feel comfortable saying i didn't find anything to really back this up but i would be willing to bet that one of the reasons gutenberg's printing press was so important and picked up so fast you want to guess it the it's about yep yeah it's right it, it gets invented right before. oh the yeah no that's that's what i've always heard is that okay like one without the other wouldn't Couldn't have, have worked yeah, yeah wouldn't have worked yeah mm-hmm. um that's what i've always been taught and like we say all the time guys history is luck It is just two things happening at the same time, and it just radically changes the world. Yeah, yeah. Like Kaylee was saying, Reformation might not have happened in the capacity it did if it wasn't for the printing press. And the printing press probably wouldn't have gained popularity as fast as it Mm -hmm. did if it wasn't for the Reformation. Yeah, yeah. um, The first, like, physical records we have of this mechanized printing press that Johannes Gutenberg invented is in 1439 in a lawsuit, actually, about the construction. Interesting. I think it was probably just like a little court thing. Like, hey, yeah, my patent. Or... Well, I mean, that's we have a lot of court records, and that's how we the only one of the only ways we can trace stuff. Court records and wills, guys. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Probate inventories and wills. When people die and <sighs> leave stuff behind, it you never and crime scene photos actually. Oh yeah, I learned sense. that in one of our classes. Oh, huh. you weren't in that class. Um, which class? Um, not material culture. yeah material culture. Huh? Um, material culture material cu- oh interesting. yeah he was our professor was talking to us about probate inventories and like how we learn how people used to live what was in their homes and one of the best ways to do it is crime scene photos interesting because you didn't take pictures that often in your home yeah, but if you had a crime happen it yeah the police came in and took high quality pictures oh. of the scene not just two people standing in front of a house but what was in the house yeah. and how it was when someone died very interesting so yeah crime yeah. scene photos guys um But yeah, so lawsuit was filed and had that date on it. So we know that it was at least in creation by uh, 1439. The version we get from Gutenberg, it it sets a standard. And of course, we modify for advances in technology. But for hundreds of years, this like replace the tiles, press, print, Mm -hmm. replace, Mm -hmm. press, print, replace, press, print is what we use for hundreds of years yeah which is why you can find so many of those letter blocks mm-hmm. at antique stores and stuff yeah yeah they're kind of neat they are and gutenberg also used a metal oh. uh, he was a goldsmith um i'll get into that well yeah i'll talk about it now mm-hmm. um he was a goldsmith and he handcrafted these small little printing matrices instead of using wood so they last a really long time it's kind of like a really clear definitive mm. letter yeah um and Letter stamps existed, of course, but they were relatively standard. But these were uniform, and they could all fit into a block. So it standardized almost the idea of typesetting. Oh, yeah. And instead of carving an entire piece or block for one large picture, you could just change it. Mm-hmm. It saved resources, time, costs, reproducibility. So he there, there's a few reasons it took yeah. off so fast. But he really he also made his own um, die and previously the inks that were being used in china and stuff a lot of them are water-based and he created one that was more efficient and kind of like a a thicker almost thing Mm. that showed up better and lasted longer yeah wasn't water-based so he also had that going for him um depending on the printer and the experience that that printer had you could print somewhere between 200 to 300 pages an hour. Wow, really? Which is a lot. That's for, a lot. Yeah. Considering they're going from hand mm-hmm. sc- like transcribing mm-hmm. like with the monks like yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's a huge radical change. It's a lo- it's it's a lot. And yeah. some people like they're that earliest 8th century press that that Chinese man invented his colleague mm-hmm. I think, made a claim that he was printing upwards of, like, in the higher multiple hundreds an hour. Wow. So efficiency is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Over time, we get the cylinder press, which is exactly what it sounds like. You... You almost have that type set in a cylinder, so you're rolling papers through instead of pressing mm-hmm. the individual, and yeah. that moves things really fast. It's it's like a rotary press, and that's what dominates the news printing industry after a while. Um, printing presses were used for news at first, but like if yeah. you think now about how newspapers are printed, or mm-hmm. if you've seen newsies um, <laughs> or like any of that stuff where they're just <laughs> flying papers out by the dozen through those yeah. rolling machines, that's this cylinder print. Okay, yeah, press. Um, eventually from there we get the offset press which is what we kind of see some rendition of now where it takes Mm -hmm. it in upside down it allows color allows color printing Mm. and that's what kind of sets our current like oh go print this for me real fast kind of thing yeah um so the invention itself seems you know oh good we have a faster way to print but the effects were unpredictable because you know 1439 is before they realize what's coming for the religious changes in the world. And this allows the spread of mass communication. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. and not just publishing an education and literacy, but news, the ability yeah. for news to travel that fast. Yeah. And the other problem is that when you get to the one without the other chicken and egg discussion is that literacy is not, great in this time period mm-hmm. so it's not like everyone could read the news being printed but all of a sudden if you're printing news people can learn to read
1: mm-hmm. so they kind
0: of spur each other yeah. on well it, it, and it's interesting too because like just the pure availability of resources compared to like what you had the church to go to mm-hmm. like before this like i mean i we know that the church during this time is like not the most honorable situation or uh like organization y- yeah but like that that and, like, there's a reason why the Reformation happened when it did. Because they were losing... Like, this caused them to, like, lose their grip on... Oh, they were... Slipping. On their, yeah. like, social control. Yeah. Because and I'll they relied on the too. fact that, like, people couldn't read and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. And, I mean, if... And it's not just, like, even if you can't read, the more people around you that can, the faster word of mouth gets to you. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, like, even if you or your family can't, mm-hmm. and your neighbors can't. All of a sudden, if your neighbors learn how to read, you are top of the world, you know? Yeah. Your neighbors can run over and be like, someone shot the king! Did like, you hear what happened? Yeah. I got a letter! <laughs> I got a letter! Um, so yeah, science sees a great new spread of information. General knowledge becomes accessi- accessible. It's kind of revolutionary, but I, I don't think we... I think we take for granted, there's so much we take for granted because of the ease of it. Like being able to Google anything, Yeah, being able to just have that technology. But then you think about the fact that the average person didn't have any formal education. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that wasn't none. a thing. Yeah. So none. Even scientific knowledge like botany yeah. or biology to just be able to have a piece of paper that had words and a diagram on it was yeah. huge. Yeah. Like So... That's true. That's like, a good point. Talking about just general knowledge, we consider general knowledge, if you told me, what is your general knowledge? I say, okay, I got through physics and bio and chem in high school and yeah. basic literature and now mm-hmm. I have advanced degrees in history and I'm about to get one museums. If you asked them what their general knowledge was, it'd be like, Addition, subtraction, multiplication. A man read. Yeah, or they, can, they can't even read. Yeah, so like so. Yeah, no, yeah. or they'd be like, "Um, I know that that fish is called a trout." Like, yeah, like you know your trade. <laughs> and yeah, that's uh-huh. that's all you need to survive. Yeah, so why you learn more? Yeah, so it really is just. I can't even imagine how radical this yeah. would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, The one of the first things fully printed on the Gutenberg press is the gutenberg bible Mm -hmm. and it's his bible is not like the first thing ever you know they already have versions available but his gutenberg bible was based off of those other versions and it became popularized and it kind of set the standard again for bibles that would be printed in the years to come i mean he also printed like calendars and pamphlets Mm -hmm. and stuff like that but this bible becomes like the star of his show Mm -hmm. um and Reformation, like we said, it's on the way. Pope Alexander, uh, I think it's the second, uh, I think Pope Alexander. <laughs> I don't know yeah. anything about the Order of the Popes. <laughs> uh, popes throw me off, and I should know it because... They're hard. I should know the Reformation the back Reformation and forth Pope. because... Yeah. I, yeah. I know it's Pope Alexander. Um, he <laughs> threatened excommunication in 1501 for anyone that reproduced church documents without the church's approval, mm. which was again like you said it's their attempt to keep a control on the people yeah. and the interpretations and i mean they're collecting indulgences and if you don't know what yeah. that is like the cell you can like it's, the it's sale basically of relics. Buy, it's it's the sale of indulgences is like being able to see relics or and like oh, like get people's souls to heaven yeah no so exactly so basically uh, when you died, you went to purgatory yeah. and your family had to pay for indulgences to help cut your time in purgatory down so that you could go mm-hmm. to heaven sooner. And if your family wasn't willing to buy indulgences, you just sat, then in, that you middle sat in purgatory, which if you believe that... It's you terrifying. had to feel so bad for, like, your dad that just died. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you're going to go buy an indulgence. And that's, like, right. one of the big issues with the Reformation, which is, again, a whole different episode. But... Right. Well, and you could also buy indulgences, like, for yourself. Yeah. Before you like, were dead. Pre... You could, like, yeah. they had, like, supposedly the nails from Jesus' time on the cross in a box. And you could, like, pay to go see it. Or you could pay yeah. to, like, climb the steps of a certain mm-hmm. church and, yeah. like, have years taken off your future purgatory. So, like... Yeah. That it's a cash cow they're making tons of money off of oh yeah what we would now consider exploiting uh-huh. people and mm-hmm. um so they really don't want to lose this hold on the bible because as soon as you take away as soon as you start reading the bare word you realize none of this is in the bible yeah like yeah and there's a lot of stuff in current churches that's like mm-hmm. this is not in the bible and you kind of have to it's that question of like theology versus um yeah what is the word the like pure study of the bible um i know what you mean word versus or, no pro- prox- ah, i'll I think about know. it later it'll yeah. bother me but um yeah. so yeah pope alexander's really worried about this and he knows that it's possible to print things now and like kind of send them out not in mass as we would consider it but mm-hmm. you know in relative a surge but then come luther and john calvin and copernicus <laughs> <laughs> And they're and like, they're, oh, like shit. they're like, oh ma- okay, we're dealing with new things, but it shouldn't be that bad. And, yeah. <laughs> and then everyone's like <laughs> uh, We should do an episode on Copernicus. Oh, absolutely. You should write him down. I I already know about Copernicus, trust okay. me. Okay. Making sure he was on your list because Oh, he is. Okay. I did a project over him in sophomore year of high school. Oh nice. I know my guy. Okay. Good Copernicus. Um, so- Copernicus. Copern- <laughs> anyway, um, we have a little much too much fun with our mics sometimes. Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, y'all don't hear what we do before we start recording. Oh, yeah. literally every episode, we speak <laughs> each other weird noises. <laughs> hey, it's... <laughs> it's a vocal warm up. It is. But yeah, so Luther, twenty years after this proclamation is made, gets excommunicated because he speaks out against the church. And I'll do a whole episode of the Reformation, I'm sure, for, oh, my, for Father's Day because.
1: <laughs> well, it's dad. kind of
0: fitting that your mother's doing the printing press and, and for your dad he'll probably oh, that want is, that's pretty fitting you know what my father really wants fitting. the history of bigfoot <laughs> heck yeah <laughs> i'm gonna, gonna have be a great a time but it's so funny episode it's so funny because you're, you're like bigfoot and oh, the, the reformation <laughs> the reformation and uh, my dad's like i want you bigfoot <laughs> well for those of y'all that don't know um my parents are lcms lutheran i grew up in the lcms lutheran church i don't know what i am um i'm i am a human being figuring out their life but um you are a grad student i I am a grad student (laughs) you are a woman you are a grad student you are living in this apartment (laughs) i am in this apartment you are doing all of those things (laughs) um so yeah but Luther, so my family is, like, big on the Reformation. I think my dad's dressed up as Luther for Halloween, like, multiple times. Before. Of course he has. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> so, um, anyway, but he's pissed off the Catholic Church thoroughly, gets excommunicated, and he spends a year in hiding, more than a year in hiding, but he translates the Bible, like, by hand from Latin, which is the official hoity-toity version yeah. that the church is using, because, also, the church was not using vernacular that the people could oh, understand like not. you would go to a church service that you could not understand the whole service was in latin yeah so, like they wouldn't even h- try to put it in and you would just be like oh yeah yeah this is great this is i'll great. do whatever they tell me to because oh, you know my <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so like this is not only exploitative, but they people literally don't know what they're hearing yeah. what they're receiving from yeah religion. it's super manipulative mm-hmm. and especially when you have a whole society that's like you need to believe in this or you're going to burn in hell mm-hmm. and so so manipulative the only interpretation of the bible that people are getting is the church's interpretation and yeah. luther's like yeah that's not right this needs to be accessible to the common people so he translates it from latin into the german vernacular not even like necessarily Martin like luther does yeah okay. by hand mm-hmm. in his he's hiding in the attic of this little castle ah, yes. and he doesn't know what a guy so for night by 1922 a year after he's excommunicated, okay. he's got the Pause. whole thing done. You just said 1922. <laughs> <laughs> I was kidding, guys. I'm going to need you to go back and read that one. I got really. you <laughs> so really I do excited. that all the time. <laughs> 1522. There, you there go. we go. It is ready for print. Okay. I'm I'm okay. Um, you ever heard of unreliable narrators? I feel like that's what we are. <laughs> we're doing our best but hey the good thing is that we have the good sense to call each other out on it yeah and for like, the most part we'll catch it don't and if not please send us an email yeah <laughs> be like hey you said 1922 and 1522 uh, <laughs> that would be so funny oh my god i shouldn't have said anything i will make uh, for anything i say wrong guys mea culpa it was not intentional again yeah. we've reiterated this we're so many times we're best. a casual podcast yeah we're chill we're literally we promise we're providing you with accurate information our notes are accurate what we say is it not if you could have accurate? a view of this, um, I'm about to get a hard lemonade from my fridge, probably, and I'm laying sideways in a chair holding a clip-on mic in my hand while Kaylee used my ironing board as a desk. Yeah, we're having a good time. Um <laughs> so if you thought this was like a super produced show, I'm so sorry, guys. Yeah, we're not... We again, do... we check out the mics from the library. Yeah, like, but we do try our best to do good research. We yes. have history degrees, so we we know what's we know what's accurate. We know what's we know how to do research. We Sometimes know how to get accurate we information. Slip. We just don't always say the right names yeah. or years or yeah. whatever. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Um. So yeah, by 1922, this German. You vernacular... did it again! Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. I'm going to stop saying. Just you need to say the year and Day- move on. 1522. There you go. 1522. Mass distribution of this German vernacular Bible was possible. Oh, my God. That was awesome. <laughs> anyway. That was really great. Um, you think we were scripted. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, okay. Sorry. We should- <laughs> Yeah, this movement this reform hashtag reformation get it reform reformation yeah okay, i figured ladies, that's why they let's get ref- let's get in reformation no it's from a musical kaylee got me some slack i don't know that musical. it's six ah go listen to six guys it's a uh, musical about henry's wives and it's amazing it's done in a pop style so if you liked hamilton you'll like six um but yeah so this reform of religion it spreads with these bibles and as since literacy has been on the uptake for a hot minute now more people are able to read this bible and Mm -hmm. other religious texts are making their way into print too there's like from other not just as this like this reformation is happening but some of the church documents some of the what will become lutheran documents like you know john calvin speaking too so his documents are able to be printed in mass and um religious texts used to be written in this beautiful script like kaylee said hand done in monasteries by Mm -hmm. monks and other scribes they they're they're an art form they really are if you ever have the opportunity to see any of these i'd recommend it they're beautiful they're done Mm -hmm. in paint a lot of the time and some of the illustrations are just incredible yeah so yeah, and another thing like cuz I think a lot of versions of, versions of the Quran are still being produced in that way, like hand done. Yeah. And those like I've seen those Beautiful. I've never seen like a handwritten Bible, but I have seen a handwritten Quran. I don't oh prefer God, to see so... a handwritten Quran because yeah, the, the they don't use an alphabet the way we do. Yeah. It's an Ugh. artistic oh my God. thing. Like if their ever... words are turned into art yeah, because in um like Islamic um belief that you you don't really depict anything mm-hmm. um especially not uh figures from the bible or the quran or mm-hmm. anything um so their art is done with words and so this is amazing form of calligraphy that mm-hmm. looks like paintings but yeah. it's like words Ugh, it's so like pretty. Y- the word is the base of it and all of the you know we have flourished the flourishes that we have on like english european language yeah. letters are nothing compared to the complexity yeah. and beauty of yeah some of this writing and yeah. like if you Ooh. ever <laughs> just just, courants, just do a, just a quick go. just do a quick google search search yeah like, hand done or hand well it's written like courants. if you Ugh. look at like the al jazeera logo mm-hmm. it, it looks like a symbol it's not it's their yeah. name written with it's so flourishes. it's so unique it's yeah. such a different like obviously like Roman-based calligraphy can mm-hmm. be gorgeous, too. But this mm-hmm. is just so, like, such a unique take that it's a really cool to look at, mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, this is part of that inaccessibility for the average person is that they couldn't, you know, not only could you not read the Bible, the Bible was this, like, sacred thing in and of itself. Monks translated, it, scribes yeah. and stuff in the monasteries. It was in, like, the home of, like, women couldn't touch, couldn't scribe, couldn't mm-hmm. do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it creates new jobs as well, and printing becomes a trade of its own, which stimulates the economy, but some people are worried about it stealing the jobs from the scribes. Like, we see that (laughs) now. With technology, we worry a lot about, like... machines are taking over. (laughs) Which, in some ways, they are. Some, like, automation has passed the point where I actually start to worry about it sometimes. Yeah, but I feel like, you know, in 1450... Oh, it wasn't a big deal back then. They needed (laughs) to chill. Like, AI is different than the invention of the printing press, guys. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But... Yeah, so it's it really is its own industry now because you're not just printing Bibles that needed scribes before you're printing pamphlets, information. Yeah. Um, by fourteen sixteen five, I got the year right. Yeah. Fourteen sixty five. Fourteen sixteen five. So this is before the Reformation. Fourteen sixty five. Fourteen sixty five. Okay, it sounds like you're saying fourteen sixteen five. 1465 before the reformation even the printing press had reached italy so about 30-ish a little less than 30 years after it yeah. shows up in Strasbourg, it's yeah already in italy and they start producing texts and books and it soon makes it to france and then england's not far behind so newspapers start becoming consistent throughout the next few decades and they get standardized and it keeps the general populace updated with everything and before social settings are so important because when none of you can read everything is word of mouth so you would yeah. go to like the pub or the town crier and you'd like mm-hmm. go your, your job is to go to the pub and sit there while someone stood on a table and just announced the day's news like yeah how else are you going to spread information exactly yeah. and now you don't need that and there's not only a local information network now where like oh Susie Susie's son needs a husband let's go find him a, <laughs> yeah you know like yeah something something like that but there's a global network now mm-hmm. where you can have a paper printed in England and it can make, its way it, can make to it all the way to France. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it means education is changing. And we talked about how with the plague a hundred years before even this, oh, that's actually almost a hundred years. Exactly. Um, but you know, last episode we talked about the plague and how it changed our concepts of education. But this, If the plague was important, this is radicalizing it. Um, The Renaissance is already in swing at this point, which has renewed interest in a lot of the classics like Plato and Aristotle. But now it's not just some hoity-toity philosophers. These are people that you can put on a printing press now and publish yeah. them for wide study. So philosophy, mm-hmm. classic texts, it's booming. And, classics- and I think I've heard that like a lot of the reason why we still have access to those classic texts is because they were put, they were printed on a mm-hmm. printing press. Yeah. Because without that, they would have been lost Completely time. lost. Yeah. Yeah. Did you hear about like someone the other day thinks they might have found the location of a buried library somewhere in Egypt or something that would no. hold like like some of the oldest scripts if it survived (gasps) like that that's really exciting i'm hoping it's not just like a hoax or some archaeologist who's really too optimistic and yeah because that would be incredible i mean we lost the library at alexandria but can you imagine if we just found a few of those scrolls? it would be incredible revolutionize what we think of the great yeah maybe we'll finally figure it out how they made their concrete (laughs) (laughs) greek fire greek fire yeah what the heck that that would be such cool if y'all don't know what greek fire is basically um it's an explosive fire that doesn't go out with water. Yeah. And, like, we don't fully understand how they did it. Mm-hmm. And we also fully don't, don't fully understand what how the Romans made their concrete. Yeah. And how the Greeks made their concrete. Like, we don't know. That information is lost to time. Mm-hmm. And that concrete is still, fun, like, better than, than modern what we have. concrete. Yeah. Yeah. And the Greek fire they used made them, like, invincible in some ways. Because if you're, you know, if you're fighting a war at sea... And yeah. the fire only gets worse with water. Yeah. Like, bro, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're invisible. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. So, like, <laughs> yeah. It would be like when people talk about like the lost text, there's so much that yeah. people didn't think. More than to... just like philosophy, but it's like practical stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's like, what is it the this salt shaker mystery or whatever that um, there used to be a third, you know, we have salt and pepper shakers, but in a lot of really, really old oh. stuff. There used to be a third. I've never heard this. Uh, yeah, and no one knows for sure what it was for. Whoa. Because it was just such a standard thing. It would be like writing an entire journal entry about your salt. You don't do it. It's not yeah, worth you noting. You preserve so that so history. Standard. Yeah. And so much of history is lost that Whoa, way because we so... don't we think it's part of our lives. We yeah. don't want to note it. And they yeah. think it might have been mustard seed. Mm. that was used as a seasoning, like salt or pepper, but they can't be sure because yeah. no one thought to write it down. Whoa. Like, Like, um, there's even, like, ancient trade routes that yeah. people are like, oh, yeah, and they're, like, leftover records, to, like, oh, yes, and then they took this route to go there and trade this, and, and current historians are like, what route? What are you talking about? Because mm-hmm. no one thought to say the route that runs from here to here to here. Yeah. Because for them, it was just standard knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... That's a fascinating thing to me about like, we don't just lose ancients and classics, but we Mm -hmm. lose just information and to be able to pick up a scroll out of a lost library and just, you know, on the bottom footnote, oh yeah, and Greek fire was made of this. That would be so... Could you imagine? Uh, That's the dream. I know. Contributions. But yeah, so all this stuff is being published for study, but the classics also see a surge because it's easier to learn translation skills. Mm, when yeah. you can get a hold of a book in another language, That's all true. of a sudden you can teach yourself. Yeah. So like the even the great classics like Plato and Aristotle, you can translate them. You can travel. You can learn new things. Francis Bacon said that the three biggest things in history were gunpowder, the compass, and the printing press. that out. I would almost say. I don't. I know the compass was huge for exploration, and it was necessary for navigation to the stars and everything. But I think the Neolithic Revolution, aka the Agricultural Revolution, is probably the biggest. <laughs> yeah, so thing. that made a big difference. We were actually able to, mm-hmm. like, in Mesopotamia, learn what it means to settle yeah. down as a society and create a society. So yeah, I mean, maybe he means more like. But modern invented, yeah, yeah, yeah. just like oh, we can farm. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I, the Neolithic yeah. p- Revolution probably wasn't even coined as a point in time yeah. at uh-huh. when Francis just, Bacon was mm-hmm. in his work. That's um, true. Yeah historiography guys i'll never stop talking about historiography because it's so weird that you never learn it in high school and then you you like learn it and you're like wow this is fundamental to like every everything single thing we, we look know. at yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um it also allows the standardization of the scientific method because academics and scholars are no longer just like hey In 12 months, when you finally finish your journey across (laughs) France to go see my friend, could you ask him if he thinks this is a good idea? Yeah. Instead, you can print your ideas, share them with each other, check information, bounce it off of each other, copy the original data from the original philosopher or thinker, and have other people check the mathematics of it Mm -hmm. without, like, you know, like I said, word of mouth over 500 miles. (laughs) og science journals like academic journals like this is where the thought of like academic journals comes Mm -hmm. from it's just being able to share ideas with others in your field yeah Mm -hmm. without it being morphed and twisted and it takes so much less time for ideas to spread because Mm -hmm. you don't have everyone debating it on the way or socrates yelling it to you at a party while he's drunk (laughs) um (laughs) But new voices in education and academics can be recognized because you don't have to be the highest of the high for someone to pay attention to you. You just have yeah. to have a really good stance, yeah. print it, and mm-hmm. then disseminate it around. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like starting a podcast. Are you wow. comparing That's... us to Johannes Gutenberg? Yes, I am. As you And I'll should. do it again. <laughs> As you should. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, when people get a hold of these ideas... I think the long-term impacts are something we don't think about because it's not long after this that revolutions start in earnest. Yeah. Um, And, Mm -hmm. I mean, we talked about in the Black Plague episode that, I mean, France was putting more restrictions on their people and a lot of European countries were because they wanted to hold a class system in place. Yeah, But when you have a restriction on classism and then a widespread use of knowledge, new thoughts, new Mm -hmm. everything. And all of a sudden it's getting mass produced. You also have things like mass hysteria, mass movements, mass, um, the people just being able to get a hold of these ideas is a radical thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it, within the next few centuries, we see things start to really, people start to think for themselves and fight back. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Very fundamental to the world today is the printing great job cat thank was you thank you fine. now i guess it's my turn yippee to do the woman who my mother requested Nellie bly and let me tell you mm-hmm. i was pretty surprised at how freaking cool this lady was like oh my gosh because when my mom told me about it she was like yeah she had herself committed to an insane asylum <laughs> um and i was like oh that sounds interesting <laughs> and she does so much and it's so cool okay i'm ready yeah, I am really excited to talk about this. So, Nellie Bly was born on May 5th. Uh, look, in my notes, I have 1964. 1864. <laughs> See, so, we, we do, both, did we it. both do it. <laughs> but 1519 is a big job. <laughs> Shut up. Let's drink to that. I got us drinks out of the fridge because yes. Cause it's been a day. Yeah. And we're not going anywhere. So if you hear us sipping slash setting down glass bottles, then yeah, you know what it is. This classy Mike's hard lemonade. (laughs) That's a wimp and won't drink any real alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) So she was born Elizabeth Jane Cochran on May fifth, eighteen sixty four, in Cochran'sville Hill. Oh my God, Cochran's Mill, Pennsylvania. And yes, if you were wondering, the town was named after her family specifically Mm -hmm. after her father, who was um, a very well-off judge and landowner, and he was very liked in the community. Um, And she was one of the kids of the second marriage for both of her parents. Um, So her father, Michael, and her mother, Mary Jane, were both in their second marriage when they married each other, and their first uh, spouses had both passed away. So... Michael, her father, had 10 kids from her previous marriage. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. And Mary Jane, I don't remember how many kids she had, but Nellie was for sure her first daughter. And unfortunately, when Nellie was six, she, uh, her father passed away. Um, up until then, they have, she had a pretty good uh, family life. No, no big deal or anything. Just, you know, they were a well-off family in a small town, so they were fine. Unfortunately, her father died without a will, which was odd considering he literally had a town named after him and was, like, very wealthy. Um, So this means that the inheritance was not actually guaranteed to her mother and um, herself. And instead, most of it went to um, his set of ten children that he had previously. Which is, like, crappy because, like, they're all, like, most of them are, like, adults by now. I was about to say, if they were kids, that'd be okay. Because it'd be like, okay... Those Take 10 kids need it more. But, like, yeah. if they're adults... But, like, his wife, who, like, doesn't have a way to, like, provide for herself, yeah. and his six-year-old. And Nellie had, like... They had, like, more kids. So Nellie had siblings. So, like, those oh. family members, like... Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of frustrating. But because of this, at the age of 10, um, Nellie's mother married a very abusive man who just... That abuse got worse uh, the amount of times that he was with the family... And fortunately, her mother does eventually divorce him when she uh Nellie was 14. And this abuse was so bad that he reportedly brandished a gun at her mother and threatened to kill her several times oh my God. in public. What? Yeah. So he was just bold. <laughs> I'm really glad that she got a divorce. Um. So after the divorce, Nellie was determined to help provide for her family and began seeking employment on her own. Uh, her first thought was that she was going to teach, but so she went to a program to get certified, which was only a semester. But something happened where she couldn't complete the program. Um, mm. It's unclear what, but I think most people agree that it's like family or not family, but money issues and like her family mm. can't afford for her to go. She, teaching was a pretty solidly, yeah. It, it was open to women, which yeah, that's the like the like one like... way that women could, yeah. yeah. Um, sometime. Uh, so, in the meantime, before she could find a job job, she takes on a series of odd jobs. Um, she does housework, you know, anything she could get her Mm -hmm. hands on, basically, she would do. Um, and that's kind of a theme throughout her whole life. Anything she could get her hands on, she's willing to do. Um, sometime in between these kind of odd jobs that she does, she saw an article in the Pittsburgh Dispatch, a newspaper, (laughs) um... An article they published called What Girls Are Good For. And it was not very flattering to women. I'm about to jump out of a window if you tell me. So she writes a very strongly worded letter. I couldn't find the article, which I was like, damn. but Mm -hmm. i probably could if i had like some newspaper resource or something but i was like i'm not gonna go that deep those old vogue articles it's (laughs) like 10 like 50 things to make men notice you and get you a husband and you're just like do i want to read this but i also (laughs) don't want to read this i just want to read it because i wanted to see her get so fired up because apparently she wrote a very strongly worded letter to the editor about publishing this article and he went someone the editor of this newspaper the pittsburgh dispatch was so impressed by her letter that he literally offered her a job. <laughs> like, <laughs> like who does this happen do to? Like what? Yes, yeah. That is so it, he girl. was like, Hey, I liked your letter. You want a job? And she was like, sure. <laughs> so here, here she launches her career in journalism, which you go, is go. what she does for the rest of her life. Mostly. So she now is working at this newspaper called the Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh dispatch. Um, Uh, during this time she earned her pen name remember she was born Elizabeth and um, she goes by Nellie Bly and it was actually the editor of the newspaper that recommended her pen name um, and it was she was named after a popular song by artist Stephen Foster um, Mm -hmm. who I've never heard of before but apparently was a big guy Um, and she would write articles on really important topics like topics that you wouldn't really think would be assigned to like women so she did things (laughs) like such working conditions life in the slums and other like important like hard-hitting topics especially considering it's like 1880s now is Nellie? maybe this is why i recognize her name is she the woman that had that famous quote about like i better do this right or us or else next week i'll be watching the flower shows again because she hated that women were like delegated always to like the really feminine stories. Yeah, myself. that would make sense. I didn't see that quote from her, but I, that sounds exactly like her. She had a very like modern, very straightforward, she didn't screw around. She wasn't flowery like a lot of people tended to be back in the day. Like, I'm going to look she, it up. She like, like, I'm going to talk about her actual writings um, later on, but like, when you read her voice, you're like, this is so easy to read and it's like so refreshing mm-hmm. considering it's it is eighteen eighty. Yeah. So, um while you're looking that up, I'm just gonna Yeah, keep going, yeah, I'm sorry I sure just, to jump in. It made me wonder if yeah. that's where I've heard. No, no I'm before. I'm wondering too, but um so in eighteen eighty six and eighteen eighty seven, for about six months, like in between the years, she even traveled with her mother to Mexico to report, um ooh, on my Oh, what I'm sorry. Um <laughs> she traveled to Mexico with her mother to do reports on government corruption and living conditions for the poor there. And her critiques were actually so sharp that they would eventually get her thrown out of Mexico. Oh, And her articles from that time were compiled in a book called Six Months in Mexico, published in 1888. Um, so after she returns from this trip to Mexico, she decides it's time to grow. And she really wants this job at a, at a newspaper called the New York World, which is a publication by Joseph Pulitzer, a.k.a. Pulitzer Prize- Mm-hmm. Joseph Pulitzer. um, she really wants to work here. So they said, okay, uh, we'll give you this job, but in order to get it, you have to do this for us. And she was like, okay. And what they wanted her to do was <laughs> get herself committed to the, insane, uh, or the asylum on Blackwell Island, which is an island mm-hmm. in the East River in New York. You go for um, and <laughs> Anything for a story. Yeah. And this island is now called Roosevelt Island, if you're wondering. Um, but at the time, it was called Blackwell. And so that everything is just named after Blackwell. So they wanted her to go undercover, get herself committed, and expose the conditions there. Um, this island was actually a really interesting place because it was also home to a lot of different institutions including a penitentiary a poor house and a hospital for infectious diseases so it really just seemed like anyone the city like didn't want to deal with they dumped in this island that was like right off the right out of the side of the city so this is this part of like and she was sorry i should i'm trying to get my thoughts around this so there's something called a stunt girl at this time in journalism, Mm -hmm. especially in major newspapers, and she was really one of the first ones. She popularized, popular, popular, oh my gosh, popularized. Why can I say the word? Popularized? Popularized (laughs) this idea of a stunt girl, which is basically... Getting women on your staff to go do these crazy things, like get committed to insane asylums, and we'll see later. She does. This is not the only crazy thing she does. A lot. I think that's. I mean, it's not standard now, but I know a lot of journalists will go through really intense measures to get the story they want. Yeah, and like, it is a thing that happens. But at this time, it was specifically among women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it wasn't just journalists. It was women specifically who would go do these crazy things. So. Um, in order to get this job, they said, yeah, go to the story for us and we'll offer you a position. She said, all right, I'll do it. Um, so, <laughs> this island, rumors had been circulating for years about conditions um, in, in all the different institutions on the island, but especially at the, um, like, the insane asylum, <laughs> because as we know we do not have a good track record with the mental health treatment facilities. No, we do not. Um, and I, I'm really sorry if I offend anyone by saying like insane asylum, I'm not sure if there's like a better updated term. I like institution, all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying it to be mean. I don't know what the proper term is. I, I would, treatment as, center. Uh, I might say like treatment center or institution. Yeah. Treatment center sounds nice. Yeah. So, I mean, at the time it was not a nice place. Right. So it definitely no, yeah. was what we would consider like an mm-hmm. insane asylum. <laughs> Um, so they wanted, basically her editors wanted her to get committed for 10 days to report on the condition there. Um, she was working under a fake name called Nellie Brown. And to do this, to get committed, she moved to a boarding house and she began quote unquote acting crazy. To do this, she wandered the halls of the boarding house and the nearby streets. She ranted and yelled. She spoke incoherently and she refused to sleep. She even practiced looking crazed in her mirror, and was like very committed. I mean, all I'm gonna do character. is act like a woman, and you'll be. Uh, <laughs> I know. So, well, she is her? You committed for uh, hysteria. Yeah. Well, and she basically puts on this persona that she was this Cuban immigrant with amnesia. That was like her, uh, okay, her story. Um, and her strategies were effective. Within days, she was arrested and then committed. And apparently, the judge was really the judge who sentenced her. <laughs> was, like, really confused because he was, like, what is this, like? Because, like, Nellie Bly is, like, very attractive. Like, you look up pictures of her. She's, like, very well photographed and everything. And she's, like, a very attractive, like, young woman. She was 23 at the time. And, like, she's wearing nice clothes. And he's kind of looking at her he's, like, why? Like, what's going on? (laughs) Also, she is the woman I was thinking of. Yeah. And she is the – the reason I know her is because she's the inspiration for Catherine Plummer's character in Newsies. The main female, she, Carl uh, Lindsay, uh, used her for inspiration. Interesting. So that's why I know don't her. Love Newsies, but <laughs> I know. Well, it's like I've, I've read the quote from her because of Newsies oh, and everything. Okay, yeah. Like in one of the interviews, they were mm-hmm. talking about how she based her off her character. Yeah, she has Bligh. so many really cool quotes. Like so many. She um, is really pretty. Yeah. So. Uh, so the judge was kind of confused. And of course, since the judge was confused, all the newspapers, except for one, the one she was looking for, were like, Who is this mystery woman? Why is she dressed nicely? Why is she going to an insane asylum? Blah, blah, blah. But uh, so he sentences her to, you know, go to the uh, institution on Blackwell Island. And <laughs> she drops the whole act when she sentences. Like, basically walking out of the, like, courthouse. She's like, okay, I'm normal now. Well, i say normal, but, like, I'm not pretending to, like, be quote-unquote crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, And despite this, she's still diagnosed with dementia and other, like, random 19th century things. She's, like, being normal to her doctors. And they're like, yeah, this is, you know. This is bad. She's got to be committed. She's a woman. This is bad. Yeah. And... So she lands herself a spot in, uh, at the Blackwell Asylum, and it was abysmal. This place, this building, was originally built to house 1,000 patients, and it was currently home to 1,600. Um, oh, wow! Yeah, so we are over capacity by a significant amount. Budget cuts meant a they had a sharp decline in quality of care, and the entire place was only had 16 doctors. That's 100 patients per doctor. Yep. And I bet it's that number because that's literally the maximum amount that doctors could handle, were willing to take on. Yeah. People um, in asylums across America suffered similar treatment to the inmates of Blackwell. Uh, Those with mental illnesses were treated like zoo animals where doctors and staff have little training and virtually no compassion where people could. And they allowed people to take tours through and gawk at the people living in the asylums. Apparently, um, one of the most famous visitors to Blackwell Asylum, specifically was Charles Dickens. Oh. And also, the understanding of mental illness was so underdeveloped at this, at this time that just added to how these people were perceived and treated. I mean, I we haven't even really got to Freud yet. Like, Yeah. W- nothing. There is, like, nothing about mental illness that is being talked about um, at this point. So, these people mm-hmm. were just really awful awful treated so once inside the facility Nellie was able to experience this world firsthand and i have a collection of quotes here from her experience in the facility um and these quotes were taken from a really awesome washington post article so um i would recommend going to read that one um so here's a quote about her first night it's quote Nearly all night long, I listened to a woman cry about the cold and begged for God to let her die. Another one yelled murder at frequent intervals and police at others until my flesh felt creepy. Um, And here's a quote from the article that also includes a quote from her. So, quote, the horrid condition of the food in the mess hall was her first dose of deprivation. Tea, quote, tasted as if it had been made in copper. She writes, bread was spread with rancid butter. And when... She got a plain piece. It was hard. It was hard with a quote dirty black color. I found a spider in my slice, so I did not eat it. The oatmeal and molasses served at the meals was wretched, and the next day she was served soup with one cold boiled potato and a chunk of beef, beef, which quote on investigation provided to be slightly spoiled. Um, the building was freezing all the time, so much so that the patients looked at blue with the cold she recounts the experience of being forced to take a bath where during which she had to share two towels with 45 people. Um, she says, quote, my teeth chattered and my limbs were goose fleshed and blue with cold. Suddenly I got one after the other three buckets of water on my head, ice cold water too, into my eyes, ears, my my nose and my mouth. I think I experienced the sensation of a drowning person person as they dragged me gasping and shivering from and shivering and quaking from the tub for once I did look insane. And then she says, quote, take a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up and make her sit from 6am to 8pm on straight back benches. Do not allow her to talk or move during these hours. Give her bad food and harsh treatment and see how long it's long it takes to make her insane. Two months would make, her a mental and physical wreck. Um, yeah. And those were all quotes from her book that she wrote about this. Um, she was especially interested in w- the women who were living in the institution. She spoke with several w- women from diverse backgrounds. Um, the most common reason why women were committed was um, either they didn't speak the language and had a hard time communicating mm-hmm. the fact, mm-hmm. or since there was a poor house on the island A lot of women thought that they were being sent to the poorhouse, but instead were sent to this institution. So they were perfectly sane otherwise, but they just got put in the wrong place. So she reports that other inmates would get beaten and then try to report it. And then when they did, they were just told that they were imagining it because they were having hallucinations because they were quote unquote insane. And then they would get beaten again. For reporting it Gosh. and this is another quote from her she says the beatings i got there were something dreadful i was pulled by the hair held under the water until i strangled and i was choked choked and kicked it was hopeful it was hopeless to complain to the doctors for they always said it was the imagination of our diseased brains and besides we would get another beating for telling nurses drugged patients and encouraged them to act out their worst violent urges and um yeah, so that's just some of it. If you would like to know more, uh she does have a book book called Ten Days in a Madhouse and it is available for free in a lot of places, including there's an audiobook version. It's probably public I mean it is public now. Yeah. yeah. Um so really great resource. Her uh writing is super easy to read. Like those quotes are pulled straight from the book and it's like very, mm-hmm. you know, just conversational and not like eighteen eighty speak, you would think. Um, so after ten days in the institution, and like women didn't get out, they had to get their lawyers to come get her. Um, oh my God. yeah, like once you were there, you were there. Yeah, it's like it was rough. <laughs> like, very bleak, very hopeless. So after ten days, the New York World sent lawyers to bail her out, and then her art- articles began to be published, and she got full two full front, fe- full front page f- features of these articles. So it was like a series. People were shocked by these, especially because up until then, um, when people came to visit the asylum, they had to put their best foot forward. So no one really knew the true conditions there, which is why they had her go undercover soon. It's like that day that the principal comes in to check your classroom yeah. and the teacher's like, Now everyone yeah. it'd be really nice. We have a special guest today and then if you uh-huh. like did anything bad it was like ten times worse punishment. Yeah. Um so Nelly By actually soon became a household name, at least in New York, which allowed her to do this kind of stunt journalism even more. So during her time at the New York world, which she worked there for me, just 23 to 25. So about two years, um, she did all of these different things. She pretended to be a servant looking for a job. She pretended to be a mother looking to sell her baby, an unwed mother, which she reportedly did for $25. Um, and then I guess told him that it was just <laughs> for, for, journalism. for journalism. Yeah. She did factory work. She stayed in a home for fallen women She acted in a chorus line. Oh. Yeah. So she danced in a chorus line. Yeah. uh, She investigated political bribery. She covered the women of Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show, which is really interesting. And I want to look into that more. Um, She even got to meet Helen Keller. And she covered uh, society during the Gilded Age, like high society. So she's Gloria Steinem. But like the OG. Yeah. She did so much. And this is all two years. And She's 23 to 25 oh my gosh i know like oh my gosh this woman was in it yeah um she apparently was not afraid to use her status as a woman to help her get better stories and closer looks at her subjects and would often flirt with like Mm -hmm. doormen or like flirt with the people she was doing stuff or covering just to get more information blah 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 um so, one of Nellie's next big breakout major assignments was inspired by none other than Jules Verne novel a uh, Jules Verne with his novel mm-hmm. that was published fifteen years prior to when she does this story so Nellie thought she would try to beat the uh beat the record set in around the world in eighty days <laughs> oh my but gosh. do it for real life and do it in under date under eighty days. <laughs> Please tell me she did oh she did <gasps> um. She thought this would be a great story, and she brought it to her editors, and they were like, "Oh yeah, we're already working on that, but we're gonna do a man, um, because uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't need a chaperone, and also ladies have too much luggage, so I massage can't misogyny. do it." But then I guess they had a change of heart, and I guess she was just really persistent persistent with them because they're like, "Okay, you can do it, but um, it's Tuesday now, and you need to leave by Thursday." What? <laughs> yeah, they gave her two days yeah and in that two days she had a dress made to wear specifically for this and it was made with the thought of i'm going to wear just this for 75 days because her goal was 75 to make it around the world in 75 days i'm in love with this one yeah <laughs> and she had this ra- address rushed um and she took literally only like writing supplies and like basic like maintenance like grooming stuff so like changes of underwear and like stuff like that like <laughs> and she took all of this just to go with her and literally her suitcase was reportedly like the size of like basically smaller like than this table i'm sitting so at like, like microwave Yes, yeah. no like thinner too like a briefcase briefcase size like she packed tight oh, and she said oh ladies have too much luggage okay I'm i'll prove you wrong you the exact opposite yeah <laughs> so she had a lot of, she had a lot of determination and i really appreciate that oh my gosh is this the bag is it a travel dress yeah bag? probably <sighs> yeah that's also an iconic um, dress yeah so and like i call her nelly because i could be calling her like you know by her like Cochrane or whatever or, or elizabeth but like I don't know. She seems very chill. I feel like she would want people to call her Nellie. Okay. Um, Not to bogart you, but I just found a little infographic that someone made. It's really cute. I wish I could credit it. Um, it's on travelandleisure.com, it looks like. It's an image, and it has a picture of her bag. It's 16 by And all by of her stuff inches. in there. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she had... Do you mind if I read it? Go for it. She had a pair of slippers, pens, paper, pencil, a handkerchief, a tennis blazer, extra underwear um cold cream jar which was the largest thing she took yeah like, she hated that cold cream jar yeah. she she was like i should not have brought this i would she like almost left it behind in like 10 different places yeah. i love it drinking cup um ink stand veils two traveling caps like a sherlock holmes dog hat. yeah call ivory soap, needle and thread and a flask. Yep. Yes. That's my girl. <laughs> 16 yeah. by 7 bags. 16 by 7. Se- she well, took that around the world to be fair, like, and lived I know out of it for seven, five women days, mostly changed their outerwear and not their oh, innerwear. Yeah. So like uh-huh. whatever, but like wow. It's still impressive. It's still impressive. Um she also took um, American money thinking that would help her son, but she also took silver oh. knowing that that would help yeah. her pay her way. Um, so, she sets up on her trip, one of the first things she actually does is meet Jules Verne, who was very, apparently very excited to meet her, and, like, welcomed her with open arms, and, like, they went to dinner, and it was a good time, and during her trip, she explored Japan, she bought a monkey, and she rode this very dangerous train across America. And about halfway through her trip, she would find out that a rival paper had actually sent another woman at the same time, but in the opposite direction. So she had someone to beat. She had to beat her back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and as she's going, she sends regular updates to, to the New York World paper. Um, and they eat this up. People are, like, crazy for her stories. So any little tidbit of information they get from her, they publish. Like... The whole of New York is like following her and being like, when is she gonna come back? And like, they're placing bets on like when she's gonna come back and like OG what she's gonna do YouTuber. and like, yeah, and like travel vlog. <laughs> um, but yeah, like people are into this. And she returned to New York in triumph, shattering both the eighty-day goal and her self-imposed seventy-five-day goal. She actually makes it around the world in seventy-two days. Oh my gosh! And all of her writings from this are compiled in another book. Called around the world in seventy-two days, which again is available for audiobook, and you can go listen to it. Uh, Sounds like so much fun. Um, And so she became even more of a sensation after she comes back. People want her for guest appearances, appearances, lectures. They want her to endorse ads and like products. And she's like a celebrity, like she's a big name. Um, But despite all the success, her paper and its publisher, Joseph Pulitzer, never thanked her, or even raised her salary. Of course not. Yeah. Um, so because of this, she left the paper, and she kind of dropped out of journalism for a while. I think she was just frustrated with the uh, career. Um, she realized that a lot of men would never see women's contributions to the field as, like, valuable mm. and... Um, Don't give up, Nellie. Yeah, like, valuable and, I-, I guess, as legit as, like, Mint's mm-hmm. contributions have been. Um so she disappeared, she didn't disappear. She like had some land, some farmland f- which she stayed on for 3 years, which apparently she used that time to try to pursue a career in fiction, which she could write, she could write newspapers, she could write articles. Mm-hmm. She could not write fiction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um she had one fiction book released like in between um like right before she mm-hmm. went. Uh, on her world tour, but she, it, it, it didn't do anything. So I don't know why she decided like I'm gonna try fiction mm-hmm. again because it just it went nowhere. Um, so she was asked back, but she was she received nothing than more than small time stories. Uh, she did have one more major story that would be really impactful on her life, and I don't know who she's writing with right now. My guess is someone in New York. Um, it could be the New York world but I don't know she kind of had a bad Mm -hmm. breakup with them so who knows but there was um, this coal strike happening at the time and coal labor strikes uh, coal laborers were striking for two months and uh, what was unique about her approach to this is she actually wrote this story from the perspective of the strikers so they were saying no we're not just rioting and looting and all doing all this stuff to be damaging Mm -hmm. um we're doing this because we deserve rights and we want... Because basically what had happened was this coal town, because, you know, miners' town often... Like, they all live in, like, one town. They had lowered the raises wages, but they had not lowered the price of anything. So people were like, we need money to live. Like, (laughs) you set the prices for all this stuff, and we can't afford to live here because you lowered our wage. So they strove... They striked. And this really set um her apart from the rest of the papers who were reporting on this because she um did the more sympathetic angle from the actual side of the coal mm-hmm. workers. So that was really cool and that was really impactful for her because she began to realize the importance of doing journalism that has meaning and doing work that has meaning. Mm-hmm. And it's not just like, oh yeah, it's really fun to go around the world in 72 days, but what is that doing yeah. for like the good of the world? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so she published that, uh, piece and this basically, this eventually led her to a job in Chicago where she would do an expose on conditions of the Cook County Jail, um, which I know is still a jail at this time or not the same building, but I know there's a jail called Cook County Jail. Um, and again, like I said, with the jail piece and with the, uh, piece on the coal strikers, she began to... Realize her need that she wanted to actually create change in the world and not just sell stories. Mm-hmm. Um, during her late twenties, she kind of gets a little lost, and that's kind of evident. You kind of see, I-, I don't know. There's just not much from her, and she's not really doing much. And um, at thirty, she marries. Which she accomplished a- more. By her late 20s, and I will in my entire life. Oh, absolutely. So like, no ragging. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Like, it, don't feel bad. But it's like sad to see someone get so discouraged and so dismotivated because yeah. of gender in yeah. her industry. Mm-hmm. So at 30, she marries a 70 year old millionaire industrialist, Robert Seaman. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> yes, she does. She's 30 and he's 70. Yep. And she only knew him for two weeks before yes! they got married. Queen! So play the game, honey. <laughs> People were like convinced that she was doing another story. <laughs> they were like, "Why are you marrying this dude? Like, you don't even know him." <laughs> like, she never gets a good answer either. So she definitely was doing it just for the, just for the money. <laughs> I mean, Good for was, her. Seventy was a pretty good life expectancy, so she probably knew it yeah. was like towards the end, yeah. and she would end up with millions. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, this marriage did not start off great. Uh, uh, for some says, reason, it didn't. It didn't. <laughs> What knowing so for, for two weeks and then get married? It's not working Ooh. out. Oh, <laughs> um. So her husband would have her, and apparently one of her former love interests followed, which she knew about and infuriated her. Uh, as um, it is, yes. So she went back to work after she got she gets married. She begins to cover the beginnings of the suffrage movements, um. And she is like, she believes in what they're doing. However, she does get very annoyed when one of the speakers at one of the events she's covering wasn't wearing a corset because she thought of dress as a weapon and one that men didn't have and therefore women should use. So she was, like, why are you not dressing correctly? Like, we need to tell men that, like, we can be smart, independent women and still be a woman, basically. so That's such an interesting... we could do a multi-part episode i'm sure on the waves of feminism but i find it so interesting how the different waves dealt with these different things because you get like nowadays you see that discussion around um around sex workers yeah about how like in the when we were growing up uh, toxic masculinity and everything had me thinking like (gasps) sex workers and now i'm like yeah okay yeah it's a job yeah like, it's a job like any other and there's uh-huh. a market for it so like yeah. whatever you want to do and like yeah and it's like it's that same discussion like you mm-hmm. can be all of these things and it doesn't diminish your anything about you being a human being that's yeah. intelligent and practical uh-huh. but at the same time there are some people who are like it, it's a weaponizing thing like it's a source of pride and it yeah. is I mean you're using mm-hmm. what you have to make your way in the world. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. And she definitely did. And I think that's why she felt so impassioned by this because mm-hmm. she had used her status as a woman to get her a leg up in uh-huh. so many different instances. And so she felt really strongly of like, no, we should still be women, but we should, we should be fighting for these rights. However, there's on the other, on the flip side of the coin, there's women who are like, I don't want to wear a corset anymore. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, and you know people who weren't able to use their, yeah or couldn't find a way to weaponize their, like, as a woman like Mm -hmm. she was for Mm -hmm. them it's just restriction for her it was a way to win so it's like every woman has a different take on it what it means to be a woman yeah and to Uh see that so early on in the suffrage movement is fascinating because it's not like she wanted a corset to restrict women but this is the time period when corsets were becoming less of a Mm -hmm. utilitarian thing and becoming Mm -hmm. more of a fashion thing Mm -hmm. gibson girl in the yeah, course, this would have been, really like, 1890s, like, early 1900s. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's really interesting. I don't know. I just feel like this is a very interesting woman. and ugh, I would love to have known her. Um So sometime after this, it, it wasn't really clear how this happened, but she becomes the president of her husband's company. Heck, yes. So I don't know if he retires or what. Like, I don't know how that worked out. But... She took this job very seriously and was very devoted to um, not only the company, but to her workers. And she especially wanted to ensure that all of her employees were treated fairly and with respect. In order to do this, she provided her employees with entertainment. So she built, like, a bowling alley in a movie theater. Like, Heck, yeah. Like, she provided for them. And... She well, you have the millions. I mean, you just do Yeah. It. She built showers for them so that after shifts, they could take a shower and then go home. Oh. It's like simple, like humanizing things. Well, in that time you know? period, a lot of people were still bathing in, yeah. in buckets of water uh-huh. that their whole family bathed in. Yeah. So I'm sure that was like mm-hmm. huge. She provided each of her employees with a meal for six during holidays. <sighs> yeah. And she even provided health care for her employees. Whoa. Yeah. Wait, like health care? Yeah. So she told all of her employees that if they went to the doctor and if their bill was over 50 cents, which I think would be around $20 um, with inflation. So like not a lot. Uh, she would pay for the bill, anything over 50, the company would pay what? for the bill, anything over 50 cents. So Whoa. that's healthcare. Wow. That <laughs> like, is healthcare. Yeah. And they didn't have to like buy into it. She was just like, no, I got it. Um, so wow. she, and it was because she had covered these stories of like workers' rights, factory conditions, um, See, the, this stro- the coal strikes. Rare yeah. examples of a big corporation truly taking yeah. care of its employees. And it's because she had that history and she knew what it was like to be, a, she never worked in those conditions, but she pretended like she did. Every billionaire or millionaire should be forced to work a public service job. I Absolutely. will stand by it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So eventually, her husband did die, and he didn't leave her a great inheritance. Um, even still, people began to took take advantage of her. Was she still the president after he died? James? Yeah, he okay. did, but people began to like exploit her and like the company, and Aww. it was like, it was like higher up positions in the company, Aww. and it was also like her relatives, including her mother and her brother. No! Which like remember she like started on this career because she wanted to help provide for her mother um and i guess her family just felt entitled to that money don't for some reason don't take advantage of this beautiful little angel yeah so it gets kind of confusing the timeline here so basically from what i can tell she wanted to escape the this kind of exploitative thing and uh, in america so she was like i'm going to go travel and this time, instead of taking 72 days to do the whole world, I'm going to go spend a few years in Europe. <laughs> Heck yeah. Just Europe. <laughs> Escape the toxic people, Nellie. Yeah. So, of course, while she was there, a war broke out. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. So, she's like, okay, cool. This is what we're doing now. I'm going to be a war correspondent. Um, and she worked in Austria. And she worked specifically with widows and orphans. And because she was working in Austria when America join the war they thought she was like an enemy <laughs> they didn't trust her she was like no like i'm literally just here reporting on the war like about here windows and orphans my mother like- yeah and they were like hesitant to let her back into the country but eventually she does make it back in um and again she goes back to where she's supposed to have a company and her mother and brother had kind of bled her dry and her company dry. so to end her like we're getting close to the end of her life, but she basically returns to journalism once and again to, um, kind of make ends meet because mm-hmm. she doesn't have any money left because her, her family is mean. <laughs> so this time she really wants her stories to focus on the struggles of the poor, especially of poor women. So she did very special or she did very practical things such as try to find homes for babies, try to find employment for women's women, etc. Um, this is kind of a paraphrased quote But people were like, aren't you worried about people taking advantage of you? And she's like, no, leave immediately, consider afterwards. Um, Wow. So she she does the good thing about being broke like me. Yeah. can take advantage. Yeah. So she was, like, kind of into journalism. She was also kind of into, like, social work and stuff like that. Um, She never had children of her own, but she apparently did foster babies. Um, So these, like, women who were trying to find homes for their children or orphans on the street, like, she would take them in and um she did that up until the end of her life she was also an outspoken advocate for birth control in 1919 and she because she really saw and a lot of people will tell or will talk about this from this time period who were advocate for advocates for both the poor and birth control they were like poor people a lot of poor people would not be in the situation they are in if they did not have birth control right because large families are expensive Oh, yeah, Yeah. they they wouldn't be in that position if they had birth Mm -hmm. control, yeah. Yeah, and people saw birth control as a way to help, like, genuinely help people Mm -hmm. who were poor at the time, Um, which is so true because you can't just keep having babies and expect it to be sustainable. We talked about that in Women Post-Civil War, yeah. Yeah. and that's always fascinating to me because I didn't think about that, about how, like, I didn't realize that, like, My religion doesn't really talk about it. Like, I wasn't Mm -hmm. talked to about that stuff in the LCMS church church growing up. Like, purity culture was a thing. But, like, they never talked to us about birth control explicitly because it was probably too explicit. But, like, I didn't realize for a long time that the Catholic parts of the Catholic church don't let you really... Yeah. Uh Like, birth control's not a thing. It's still, like, not a thing for Catholics. Like, I didn't realize that for a lot of, like, hardcore practitioners. And so I didn't realize for a long time that, like, you know, I... I come from a family where, like, they had a lot of kids, but those kids were necessary to, like, help on the farm and stuff. Yeah, but when you're not uh-huh. in a farming situation... And you're, like, living in the slums in of the a city, city yeah. that's a different story. I just thought yeah. it was... Growing mm-hmm. up, I thought that's the way it was because that's how my ancestors were. They had a lot of kids yeah. to help out. But, like... Yeah, and there was a time and place for that, but... But not in the slums. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, she... Recognized the need for families to be smaller, and that's how they would survive. So she was a really strong advocate for birth control. Um, unfortunately, she got sick, and she had no concern for her own body. And she begins st- her health begins to deteriorate, and she ignores it. And this eventually led to her dying of pneumonia in at f- the age of fifty eight in nineteen twenty two. So. I couldn't imagine, like, what the world would have been like if she was alive for another 10, 20 years. Kept going, yeah. Yeah, but um, this way why we don't ignore our health problems, Kat. Shut up. Kat. <laughs> shut up, mm, Kanye. Anyway, yeah, she was a badass, and I feel like a lot of people need to know more about her. Um, I, for one, put her, uh, like, the audio recordings of her books on my play or like my to read list so she like, sounds fast yeah and the fact that she's like I, I don't know there's just so many chances to like hear her voice and mm-hmm. she's way cooler than i thought she was so look more into her she's a great gal and definitely worth it so for sure yeah that was nilly ply wow yeah i love it yeah cool
1: i'm lady. really glad that i
0: have like a facebook with a name now yeah like you can google her yeah, I just didn't, yeah. like, I was, There's when a lot you, of pictures you kept of her, saying actually. Nellie Bly when we were talking about this week, and I was like, I feel like I know her, but I can't yeah. place it, and I don't know explains, where I know her from. I'm realizing but... now I know her name from Newsies, but I yeah. didn't realize she was a reporter until you, until I made that connection, and I was like, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that, so, though. That's yeah. fantastic. We had some good stories. I thought it was a lot of fun. Today was a good, t- or just good. We had four stories today, and they were all fun, mm-hmm, so. They were. Well, not fun. A lot of people died in our last episode. Oh, that's but... Well, Yeah. But I enjoy getting to, like, talk about that and see yeah. the modern versions of yeah. old iterations again and again, mm-hmm. and that's probably the history nerd, you know, the yeah. history nerd and museum nerd in us. Oh. Yeah. I had a huge museum nerd moment Oh this no. week. Oh, I was no. listening. I was at work cataloging arrowheads. Because, as you do. As one does. Yeah. And I was listening to, and this is why we drink. And that's why we drink. Sorry. And that's yeah. why we drink. Yeah. And um, they were talking about... They were talking about Chippendale. Yeah. And I thought they were like. <laughs> like the dancers. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't yeah. know that Chippendale were dancers. Yeah. My first thought. Well, and then one of them was like, oh, I was talking about the cartoon. And the other one was talking about the dancers. And my brain the entire time was on Chippendale furniture. Uh, because we've talked about it so much in our material culture class. And I was like. Oh, my God. Sometimes that museum I know the exact professor, too. Is exactly. It, you know exactly what I'm talking about, but sometimes oh it just God. hits you like a bullet and you're like, <laughs> oh, I'm a nerd. Yeah. But yeah. I enjoyed this. However nerdy it is, I love getting to share stories with you. Oh, yeah. It's a good learn. time. And learn. I feel like I've learned a lot. I know. We don't... Will I retain any of it? No. <laughs> I, have enough, I always retain enough to tell people at parties. Yeah. I was like, I know the rough estimate or the rough outline of all the stories I've done. Well, like And my... I do have the notes for everything still. So. Yeah. My brain's good at picking out like a detail or two, so I'll, yeah. be, I'll be able to be like... Oh, yeah. There was actually a woman who did it in 72 days, you know, in the future. Like, just little tidbits Yeah, exactly. Fun facts. You do, like, you you are a brain for fun facts. Yeah. So. We need to close with a fun fact. (gasps) Oh, Um, no. Uh, Nellie Bly went around the world in 72 days. (laughs) Fun fact Last week was a president with Abe Lincoln. Uh, This week, I will tell you that Zachary Taylor overdosed on cherries, and that is how he died. Hell yeah, he did. He did. He had way to so go. many cherries and m- so much milk at his inauguration Ugh. that he got gastro, is it pronounced gastrointelitis? I, sounds great Whatever the thing is, it's basically like your gut goes into distress and he had so many cherries that he basically, oh no. You know, that's hilarious because when my brother was little, he would call the maraschino cherries marijuana cherries. <laughs> So, like, that's really funny. So sorry. I just, like, spit into the mic. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Yeah. So, but he did not overdose on those chairs, even though he is a fiend for sugar and has, like, a problem with it. But anyway, enough about my brother. Well, review us on Apple Podcasts, please. It takes just a second. We'd love to hear feedback. So, Apple Podcasts is, uh, if we get reviews on there, they will promote us to other people. So, Mm -hmm. we could really, really, really use your help and support by reviewing us there that would be really awesome uh other than that tweet at us um on twitter at t-i-n-a-h-l podcast yeah we'd love to hear from you cat uh does that so you'd have you have a direct line to cat if you do that supposedly i don't check it as much (laughs) as i should um if you want to talk to me i mainly do the email so Mm-hmm. You can email us at thisisnotahistorylecture at com or we're good friends. And if you want to talk to either of us on either platform, just say, I have a message for blank. And yeah. We'll tell the other person. We see each other uh, basically every day. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other than that, I think we're done. Yeah. So glad to pre-record for y'all. Yeah. We'll be getting this in a couple weeks. We'll have and... a lot of updates by the next time you hear from us. So yeah. hope you all have a great month of May. Yes. And we'll hear from you again. In June, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye.